And you can find Acts chapter 12 on page 780. I'll read there in a minute. We have been in the book of Acts in the New Testament since the beginning of the calendar year, and today's text is our last passage until we pick up again, most likely later in the year. Um, Next week, on Father's Day, what I'll do is what I've typically done over the years, which is when we finish a, a big chunk of Scripture that we've been walking through sequentially, what I'll do next week is summarize the main themes and significant events of Acts 1 through 12 um, in a short devotional, and then uh, enable time, as a few of you have requested, to have question and answer so you and I can interact, okay? So uh, be thinking of what questions you might want to ask. Write them down. Bring them. If you're too shy to raise your hand and ask them, we're, uh, we'll, we'll think up some technical solutions so you can pull out a smartphone and uh, ask it, um, if not anonymously, at least not uh, publicly, um, having to stand up. And then um, our summer series will sample the inspired songbook of the Bible, the Psalms. So as you are... Uh, uh, away, in and out, you won't feel like you missed anything because each Sunday we'll be looking at a different psalm. Acts. As chapter 12 begins, we're on the cusp of seeing the gospel truly begin to be launched to the ends of the earth. The beginning, ironically, was the persecution against the Christians by the religious Jewish authorities in Jerusalem that pushed Christians outward into the surrounding areas of Judea and Samaria, and now starting to get into uh, true Gentile territory uh, through the Roman Empire. And not surprisingly, as the gospel begins to encroach on those new territories, the Roman governor, King Herod Agrippa I, wants to get in on this action. Acts chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Listen carefully. These are God's words. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial... Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were anticipating. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. 
When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the brothers about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there for a while. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. When Barnabas and Saul had finished the mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, as we regularly ask, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. Let 2,000 years in a different culture not stand in the way of us here now receiving your voice and treating it not as the words of men, but as it actually is, the word of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First, there's only one king. As I said, the gospel is starting to spread out from Jerusalem into the surrounding areas, now truly into Gentile territory, so that it's no surprise that persecution begins to start coming from the Roman Empire, which ruled the entire known world. Herod was the local governor of Judea, and he couldn't allow, as a good servant of Caesar, he couldn't allow this growing Christian movement to become a threat to Caesar's sovereignty. And so his move against the church is really a battle between kings, Caesar, and everything Rome stood for, and Jesus, whom they crucified, and all of his followers. How will Jesus stand up against real political and military might? There's a standoff. Well, the beginning doesn't go so well. Verse 2 tells us that James, the brother of John, one of the original apostles, is put to death. You remember back in the Gulf War, the U.S. government and uh, the U.S. military used this ranking system with a, play, uh, a, a deck of cards to describe how important certain figures in the Iraqi government were, right? So Saddam was the ace of spades because he was public enemy number one, and, and all of the, um, the generals that worked under him were, were uh, given a, a playing card. Well, James is the ace of hearts, He's one of the leaders in Jerusalem. He, he, he had walked with Jesus all those years. He had apostolic authority, and now he's gone. A big win for Herod in his propaganda machine. And he also catches Peter, the ace of spades. Now, Saul uh, will probably become public enemy number one, but he, he's not yet well known um, by the, uh, the authorities, religious or um, political 
and Peter's the big fish. Verse 4 tells us that Herod puts him under guard um, by four teams of four soldiers each, presumably on rotation, and two of them were chained to him at all times, even while he's sleeping, all because this one highly strategic prisoner um, will make Herod look really good. His approval ratings will soar. The Jews will be happy. A Roman government uh, at home will think he's doing a great job keeping the peace. He's persecuting the church in order to exalt himself. But here's the thing. In any kingdom, there's only room for one king. And in the kingdom of God, self-exaltation competes with Jesus' exaltation. All of us at some point would admit, at some level would admit, yeah, you know, there are times where I think of myself, I'm selfish, I say things I shouldn't, I act in a certain way, I think of myself and not others, you know, nobody's perfect. But that selfish streak has far greater consequences and goes far deeper into the depths of our beings than we would like to, we'd be willing to admit. Because sin, um, the root of sin is always the choice of pursuing self-righteousness instead of trusting God's righteousness that he's exhibited in Jesus. Sin is always a choice to distrust that God is ultimate, Ultimate in what? Ultimate in power to accomplish what he wants and ultimate in love to always act in the best interests of his people. Sin is always a choice to distrust. I don't believe God has what's um, my best in mind because I want this and God hasn't provided it for me and so I'm going to go on my own way. Or God says I shouldn't, but I really want to and I know I'm happier when I do this, when I say this, when I act a certain way. So I choose a path of not God. And a path of not God is always a path of me, self-exaltation instead of Christ-exaltation. Herod's self-exaltation wasn't exactly subtle. He saw that killing James, maybe even on a whim, pleased the Jews, verse 3. And so he proceeded to seize Peter also. Popularity, praise of men, prestige, influence, status, whether it's Herod in the first century or you and I today, these are drugs that give a quick hit and make us, leave us longing for more, longing for more praise of, 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 of other people, longing for more sense of approval and belonging and status and importance. This is what Jesus says in, in drawing this contrast between black and white, nothing in between. He says in John chapter 5, how can you believe if you accept praise from one another horizontally? Yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God. He alone deserves praise. And we should be returning it to him, not looking for it from one another. Herod, at the end of chapter 12, goes looking for more. He has this audience with uh, the people of Tyre and Sidon up the Mediterranean coast. And um, his... Hunger for the praise of men is so classic because idols leave you craving more. They never satisfy. They make promises they can't keep. And like a drug addiction, leave you craving even more to bring the same level of satisfaction. And what the people shout to him in verse 22 is so natural to the way sin works, to the root of sin, which is self-exaltation over Christ-exaltation. 
because sin robs God of the exalted status that he alone deserves. The people say to him, sitting on his throne, having given this marvelous speech, Josephus, the secular historian, reports in this moment that his, his robes gleamed like lightning. Uh, it's all about appearance. And the people respond as you'd expect them to. Whether they mean it or not, it doesn't matter. They say, this is the voice of a God and not a man. And they're exactly right. Because when sin exalts self, self is saying, I am higher than God. My opinion is wiser. My path is better. That's the very root of sin's temptation. Going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, when in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, they saw the fruit and wanted to become like God. I included um, the end of chapter 12 in the reading because, frankly, I don't know how you skip a, a passage that describes an evil man getting struck down by an angel. Just an awesome Bible verse. I couldn't skip, then he was eaten by worms and died. That's just, you know, classic. Um, it, it didn't happen all at once. The scholars believed that he probably was struck with an intestinal, intestinal worm or parasite of some sort and um, lingered in agonizing pain until he expired or breathed his last breath, as the texts say. But there's more significance than just an angelic hitman taking out the big bully and defending the church. What Luke, the author of Acts, is keen to point out is this, a, a couple of big themes. In the face of intensifying persecution, and even the loss of the ace of hearts, James the apostle, by the way, the other James mentioned, who's still alive, is the brother of Jesus, half-brother, um, Mary's other son. What Luke is pointing out is that despite that loss, despite the persecution that's ongoing, God's purposes have not been thwarted. They've not been derailed. God is not scratching his head up in heaven thinking, gee, how do I, how do I replace James? He was my right-hand man. You know, I was, I was counting on him to lead the division. Um, nothing is unexpected to God. His plan to rescue his people and to renovate creation is continuing because he's sovereign He's almighty, and try as they might, neither evil spiritual forces nor power-hungry, self-promoting earthly governments can do anything to stop his plan. Acts is really giving us this blueprint for all of history, especially for the church. God's people lose battles. The church takes it on the chin and sometimes is down for the count, but God redeems this and new life springs up. The persecution from Rome will get far worse. Thousands will lose their lives, burned, beheaded, crucified. But God will redeem that, and history proves that Christianity will continue to grow exponentially for years to come. If you think that's just an early church phenomenon, hit the fast-forward button and, and jump to the 20th century. I, I love this story in, in real church history. Um, during the Cultural Revolution in China, Chairman Mao ordered the purging of all dissent from communist ideology, which included the banning of religion and every religious element from Chinese culture and society. And what happened, um, what, what, led, what that led to were over 10 years of utter spiritual darkness, or so it would appear, because 
during that time, the underground church survived and even thrived. So when communism took over around 1949, um, estimates are that there were about 4 million Christians in the entire country. Today, two generations later, there are well over 100 million Christians. Whether it's Chairman Mao or King Herod Agrippa I, there is only one king, and his power is absolute. These so-called kings come and go, but the word of God continues to grow and spread, verse 24 tells us. Author John Stott says this about Acts chapter 12. He said, the chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. That's what this is about. There's only one king. His ways will prevail. Herod did everything he could to enhance his reputation, exalt self. But in the end, his life is taken, and it's Jesus' reputation, dead and risen, Jesus' reputation that begins to, continues to multiply. The crucified but risen Nazarene carpenter has the name that is above every name. And not that many people remember Herod Agrippa I because he was a nobody. A bit of an aside as we consider um, one strand of application. Why is a church considered a great church? Um, Is it because of the man or because of the exaltation of Jesus? And so um, do you hear in Christian circles, go here, go here, go there, because he's awesome. He, he's an amazing preacher. He's anointed. Uh, God's, God uses him to accomplish amazing things, which very well may be true. Or um, instead, should you not hear and say, as um, enthusiastic members of Grace Redeemer Church, you should come here to Grace Redeemer Church. Well, why? Because Christ is exalted in the preaching, in the singing, in the community. Because God is doing a mighty work among his people, which biblically defined, especially here in Acts, has very little to do with a a show, religious display, you know, bells and whistles. Some of the outward things very well may look wonderful, but what's underneath is in a great church, a truly great biblically defined church, deep repentance is going on. We're talking about sin, which we do regularly, without shame, openly. We're not proud of sin, but we talk about sin quite brutally, honestly, because there is an antidote to the spiritually terminal disease that leads to death, and his name is Jesus, and he alone deserves all the glory. And a a truly great biblical church is boldly sharing the gospel, not hanging on to these life-giving truths, but uh, giving it out and, and demonstrating radical generosity and strong family ties within the community of faith, loving one another, supporting, encouraging, building each other up. That's what a truly great church is. Do you have the right motivation for boasting appropriately about Grace Redeemer Church? Or are you tempted to say uh, about this person or that person, that they are more excellent than others at other churches. Nothing in Acts encourages the exaltation of man. Peter shows up at Cornelius' house. Uh, A couple weeks ago, we looked at Acts chapter 10. 
and Cornelius is tempted to fall down in front of him and worship him, and Peter says, get up. No, I'm just a guy like you are. And here, he's a completely passive character. Um, Verse 17, he says, the Lord had brought him out of prison. In fact, um, you know, he's sleepwalking, or at least he thinks he does, and, and they come to the iron gate leading to the city, and it opened for them by itself. Peter didn't touch it. There was no internet of things yet. You know, God was not on his app. He just willed it. It opened. Peter did nothing. He was asleep. In fact, the the angel struck him on the side and said, get up, because he, he, he had nothing to do with this. He didn't think of borrowing power tools to escape the maximum security prison. You know, that hadn't been invented yet. Um, and in, in verse 23, the angel struck, same word, Herod. It's God's work to bring him down, right? Raising up Peter from sleep and bringing Herod down from his pride. That leads us secondly to the will of the king, which equals the heart of the father. When you look at chapter 12 as a whole, especially in the context of prayer, don't you wonder why James died and Peter was rescued? Don't you wonder, well, were they praying? Did did they think, ooh, you know, we should have gathered everybody together to avoid that, and next time we'll learn? Uh, Or were they praying and God didn't answer? And why not? Doesn't he love them equally as his servants? Before we get to uh, talking about prayer next, what I want simply to note first is this. God calls some people to bear witness to Jesus, some through their death and others through their life. The will of the king in allowing one or the other is no different than the heart of a perfect father who loves his children and desires their best. There's a Christian pastor named Saeed Abedini. Um, He has been imprisoned in Iran for almost three years. His wife and two children are here in the U.S., and she has been uh, petitioning um, the U.S. government to do whatever it can to free him because human rights uh, violations are rampant, and he, he was just beaten savagely again this past week. His life is under constant threat because he converted from Islam to Christianity. And here's how I've been praying. I think like many of you have been praying. I've been praying, God, deliver him. Open the doors. Send an angel. Let him walk out of that country. Use diplomatic means. Whatever means you need, Lord, free this man so that he might be reunited with his family and continue many years of gospel ministry. But I think this is equally biblical prayer. I've also been praying for Pastor Saeed Abedini that if he's executed or beaten to death, which right now is more likely from a human standpoint than um, Iran just saying, you know what, we'll let you go. If he's killed through whatever means, I've been praying that his death would trigger an outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon Iran and all of the Middle East, that light would shine in a very dark land, that just like has happened so often in church history, that the blood of a martyr would open up the pioneering work of the gospel in a place that does not exalt Jesus but reviles his name, that revival would come to that area of the world if the will of the king, and the heart of his heavenly father is such that Pastor Abedini loses his life. 
One of the early church fathers named Jerome wrote this in the early 300s. He wrote, The church of Christ has been founded by shedding its own blood, own blood, not that of others, by enduring outrage, not by inflicting it. Persecutions have made it grow. Martyrdoms have crowned it. It's so easy for us here in the 21st century America to just be removed and say, yes, thank you for all these martyrs, and then flee uh, instinctively any sense of persecution and wrong that is done to us. There's another story um, from Elizabeth Elliot, her life story. She wrote a book called uh, Through Gates of Splendor, which tells a story uh, about the death of her husband Jim and four of his colleagues at the hands of the Wadani Indian tribe um, whom he was trying to evangelize. And the story was later made into a movie called The End of the Spear. Um, It it came out maybe 10 years ago. We have a copy of it in the church library, and I'd, I'd highly recommend it. But just at face value, on a human level. We, we hear the story of five husbands who were also dads with little children who had sacrificed so much, the, the, the comfort of being um, in their homes, some Americans, I believe, and leaving it all to move into the heart of the Amazonian jungle to minister to people who had never heard of Jesus. And, and at face value, we think, what a waste. God, what are you thinking? Uh, couldn't you honor the sacrifice of these five families who now have five widows and five sets of children who don't have a daddy? What a waste. That's what we're tempted to think, aren't we? But God allowed it. God allowed these men to, to build this landing strip for their little plane and land, and before they could even minister the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be killed and eaten by the cannibals whom they were trying to reach. That was the mean God chose in his providence, his wise and powerful working out of his perfect will as king of the universe to break through the veil of unbelief, to shine the light of Christ into a spiritually dark land and to bring about later on through two relatives of, of uh, the deceased the conversion of much of this tribe to Jesus Christ. In his perfect wisdom, the will of the king was no different than the heart of a perfect father who longs for the best of his children. Yes, even those little ones who lost their daddy before they even know who he he was. Here in Acts chapter 7, we already saw Stephen's horrible death stoned at the hands of an angry mob, leading to the scattering of Christians. They had to flee house and home in Jerusalem, and we think, two bad things happening. God, was he asleep on the job? Oh, no. The will of the king and the heart of the father allowed Stephen to come home early, to be in the presence of the Savior, not lacking a thing, and these Christians to be scattered so that they might bring the gospel to people who would otherwise not have heard, to save and rescue them. Why? Because James's death and Peter's rescue equally display God's compassionate love for sinners who need salvation, which is the ultimate good because it leads to life and not to death. Lastly, um, let's interact over the mystery of prayer. I don't doubt that the church was gathered praying for James when he got arrested, but his head got cut off. And it makes you wonder, what were they thinking when they gathered again in this particular home 
to pray now for Peter, ace of spades. They lost a valuable card, um, a member of, of, of the church leadership. And I, I wonder what they were praying and how much they were trusting and what they were expecting from God because God answered their prayers with a big and immediate yes. And Rhoda, famous uh, for not opening the door, um, she recognized Peter's voice. She leaves it locked as she runs back to tell everybody that he's there. And this is the reaction from the room filled with praying, believing, saved Christians. Verse 15, you're out of your mind. Rhoda, he's in prison, you remember? That's why we're praying. Now, can we cut the games and get back to the prayer meeting so we can pray for Peter who's in prison? I wonder what they were expecting. I wonder how much they were believing in what they were saying to God. They, they even go back and say, oh, okay, if you're insisting, maybe it's his angel, some kind of apparition that looks like Peter. Maybe, maybe there's a, a message but this is the beauty of Scripture. Just like back in, in verse 7, the angel tells Peter, quick, get up, as if, you know, angelic sleepy potion only lasts for a few seconds, and they have to act before, you know. The angel is serving the sovereign king. He's on a mission. He'll do what he needs to do. But he says, says to Peter, quick, get up. And he tells him every step, put on your robe, um, your, your sandals, and, and follow me. And here, this account just rings with this earthy, normal, ordinary, non-airbrushed reality. If Scripture were propaganda, it would never have these kinds of earthy elements that actually um, demonstrate the faithless, unfaithful patterns of God's people, you know, that make us look silly, like fools, but it's real. And, and, And that helps us connect with folks who are at this prayer meeting, half believing, half doubting, hopeful, but despairing, praying, but not expecting. Do you you ever feel like that? Like the guy who said to Jesus, I do believe, help my unbelief. That's not being schizophrenic. That's being a a real Christian following after the Savior, wrestling with these things of of, um, eternity. Let me walk us through one scenario as we close, okay? Or, or uh, uh, a handful of, um, of items. Let's say you're praying about a difficult circumstance, suffering, your own or someone uh, who is close to you. What do you expect from God? How do you react? Uh, and, and what are you praying? Okay, so in scenario number one, you're praying and God answers by delivering you from that suffering. And you, you, if you have a prayer journal, you write it, you cross out that prayer request and you say, answered, check, done. Don't have to pray that prayer anymore because God has given me a yes. Or has he necessarily? Because in, the, in the, the other scenarios, suffering continues um, and sometimes it even intensifies, okay? So scenario number two is this. Some of those who give up on prayer end up turning away from God. They can't tolerate the answer or non-answer because... They only have one right answer in mind, and God hasn't delivered. And if he hasn't delivered, what good is he? He's not to be trusted. He's not good. He's not powerful enough to do anything about this. He's impotent, and I'll move on and take care of things on my own. So if I have a disease, I'm going to go research it uh, to, to no end on the Internet. I'm going to find the best specialists in, in the area, and I'm going to eat right. I'm going to change my whole diet. I'm going to exercise, you know, uh, go radical, right, to heal myself because God hasn't answered so very often, uh, the person who 
not even necessarily turns away from God, but distances himself or herself from God, does so because we enter into this prayer, if we pray at all, with only one right answer in mind. So if it's health, what's the right answer? I'm healed. My chronic back pain goes away. My disease disappears. My blood count returns to normal. Um, And if not, God's not answering. We only have one right answer in mind. God needs to figure it out because we already have. That's basically what we're saying. Self-exaltation over Christ's exaltation. There's nothing in between. If I'm praying for a job, maybe I've been out of a job or I'm I'm in a horrible situation, bad boss, um, ugly politics, not getting paid what I deserve, and I pray, what's my only right answer? Foolishly so. God, get me a better job with a good boss and better pay and great hours and flexibility and wonderful people to hang out with. And otherwise, what, what, what good is it doing me to pray? You're not hearing me. You're not answering. So very often, that's our pattern. We have one right answer. But might the will of the king be no different than the heart of a perfect father who loves you so much he will never give you a lesser good because he has something better in mind. Perhaps he says, oh no, if I gave you that, you would turn away. You would idolize it. Uh, A third scenario is um, many others resort to settling for substitutes. So if you don't get what you want, relief from a, a circumstance, you'll dull it by pursuing a pleasure or an escape. Maybe shopping gives you a high, or pornography, or a bottle of wine, or binge-watching a Netflix show, you know, just dulling the, I'm just going to veg out and uh, not have to deal with the reality of life. Sin becomes self-justifying because the heart begins to say, well, God didn't give me the relief that I really need. God, you don't understand. I can't go any further. And God didn't do it, so I'll take it upon myself. Self-righteousness over God's righteousness. A fourth scenario is some do keep praying and trusting, and a select few of them become powerful witnesses of resurrection power. You know what? The select few most often are the ones who are suffering the worst, and yet they persist in faith. Their testimony of God's goodness, despite the obvious trying circumstances, has great impact on others. I think of Johnny Erickson Tata. Our our retreat speaker co-wrote three books with her. Um, and I'm curious as to if, uh, whether he's going to um, include some of those um, experiences in his um, retreat talks. But she was paralyzed as a teen, uh, I believe from the waist down, in a diving accident. You better believe she prayed over and over, sometimes angrily, sometimes in anguish at the end of her rope, God, bring function and feeling back to my body. God's answer has been, she's now in her 60s, God's answer has been all along, no, Johnny, I want to use you for greater and longer lasting good than your legs could ever accomplish. And that's a hard calling to accept. The more a person suffers with tenacious faith, the greater God uh, can accomplish things through them. Many more uh, than those select few who are suffering 
continuing. We would be in that category if, if we experienced that. We properly mourn and grieve the pain of life, the way that nothing is as it's supposed to be because of the fallenness of creation. And uh, we, we grieve the answer from God that is not what we want it to be, but many more of us are called to persist in faith to realize that what we've longed for would actually bring us greater destruction. Um, because God as perfect father and sovereign king perhaps would say, if I gave you all the career success you wanted, you'd let it get to your head. You would neglect your family. You would idolize all the stuff you could buy with all that money, and you would drift from an intimate relationship that your need right now in your crisis drives you to me because you have nowhere else to go. No, 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 no. Child, I love you too much to give you that great job, to give you advancement in your career. You're going to be stuck right there in drudgery day after day with that horrible boss thinking you, you deserve more money because that's where you are dependent upon me. Somebody else says, God, would you give me a spouse? Would you give me a better spouse, a different spouse? And God says, oh, no, my child, if I gave you what your heart in the flesh longed for, you might idolize him or her instead of returning to me in a proper relationship of worship between creature and creator, the glory that I deserve and you will enjoy with me. I love you too much to give you that, my child. All of us are called to think about prayer and let go of that one right answer we know we're just waiting for and say, the will of the king is no different than the heart of a perfect father, and submit. Lastly, uh, one of the best pictures of persistent faith in the, in the face of trying circumstances is, um, I, I think, in Daniel chapter 3. Ne- um, Daniel's friends are in trouble with Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to throw them into the fiery furnace, and this is what they say to him. In summary, God will rescue us, but even if he does not, we will not bow to your gods. You know, it's like bravado, maybe not. God will rescue us. They're not saying God will rescue us, but if he doesn't pick up the phone really quickly, we're in trouble. They're not saying God will rescue us, but maybe not. They are saying we are safely in the hands of our sovereign Lord who loves us perfectly. And even if he doesn't rescue us in the way we think we want to right now, God, it's getting hot, do something now, we're trusting him somehow uh, we will not suffer loss. That's faith in the face of difficulty because the servant of the true king does not know what the right answer is. We pray, we ask for wisdom, we ask the spirit to guide us, but in persecution, suffering, even to the point of death, this king is able to rescue because of resurrection, not through decades of earthly comfort, not by giving us the childish desires like a lollipop now in a temper tantrum that have many adult equivalents. Resurrection is his greatest promise. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate. He has seen my need in sin and hath shed his own blood for my soul. And therefore, it is well, no matter what has happened, with my soul.
May we have that kind of faith. Let's pray. Lord, you're a good God. You're the sovereign king. There is no other. And those are not two divided parts of your personality. They are one and the same. It's our limited view and perspective that uh, causes the difference to be perceived. Lord, help us to trust you no matter what, even to the point of death, because you are the God who raises the dead and your promises will never fail. We trust you because of Jesus.